Landry.audio, today, uh, three and a half hours ago, I got put on notice that we were going to get the chance to do the interview with uh, Australian heavy metal comedian Steve Hughes. Um, I know him. You may have seen some of his work floating around on YouTube or other places. He's got a, a few uh, pretty notable clips online, including death metal and cooking. I remember the Welsh language. And, of course, the other one that we fell over ourselves off on paraphrasing here was being gay is hardly soft. Um, I've seen him play a couple of times. It will be interesting as the times that I have seen him. Sometimes he's cordial and affable, and I've also seen him absolutely go off and go ballistic at the crowd he is there to entertain. He's touring <laughs> Australia at the moment, uh, his homeland, my adopted country, and we're chatting with him now. Steve, how are you going? I'm doing quite well, actually. Awesome. Quite well. So, um, as I said, people... Uh, uh, you know, as we were talking about just before we turn the mic on, some people are going to know you. For a lot of people, it's going to be their first introduction to you. Um, so do you want to just sort of give a, a summation? I mean, even looking at your online website you, uh, and Wikipedia, you describe yourself to these days more as a as a musician, which is where you started before you got off into comedy. So do you want to sort of give us the elevator pitch so people can know who you are? Oh, yeah, I did. I started in bands, uh, extreme heavy metal bands. Uh my first band was Slaughter Lord, which is basically probably one of the most, or the first sort of extreme sort of thrash death metal band in the country back in around 85, 86. And that, uh, we just released a sort of one demo and then that fell apart, unfortunately. Uh, although it's still quite cult around the world. Uh, this is what I've been reading that, um, you know, I don't know much about the underground early Australian scene outside of, you know, like bands like Destroyer 666, I guess is probably as far back as I go with some of that stuff. And I know bands like the, uh, actually I didn't see, I saw them not too long ago. So I went and saw, um, King Parrot and I had no idea that they were made up of like Blood Duster, Dreadnought and Berserker, like all these other sort of bands who's, you know, when, when buying CDs was still in vogue, then I got to see them. So what was, um, what was that sort of scene like in the the early death metal scene in in the eighties and, and growing up over here? Well, in Sydney, you basically had the only two to begin with was Slaughter Lord and Mortal Sin. I ended up playing in Mortal Sin as well at the end of the eighties, and it was only for about a year and a half in the beginning of the nineties. Um, so yeah, basically in Sydney, we were basically the only two thrash bands. Um, Little Lord being even sort of more death metal then, uh, even getting into blast beats before the blast beats were even really a thing, uh, you know, and Mortal Sin was sort of more your sort of uh, just thrash. Traditional, metal. yeah. Thrash. And, uh, and then I think, you know, in Melbourne you had stuff like you know, Hobbs Angel of Death, which is kind of thrashy. And of course you had, this is when thrash metal and stuff started to cross over into punk. So there was, you know, we started to gig with punk bands like Mass Appeal and the Hard-Ons and Death Sentence. And, and so that was that sort of uh, the, the beginning of that underground alternative metal scene as it, like, you know, started by, of course, you know, you'd have Metallica and Slayer and Anthrax and in this in terms of the first big bands to start to, be, to, to, to bring thrash metal to, to, to prominence. And then... Uh, and it was still quite. It was very. It was very exciting back then. I think. I mean, that whole the whole world was kind of in the underground. Was kind of a sort of global energy about it then. And uh, you know, then Germany started to bring out Sodom and Creator and Destruction and 
Bathory from Sweden, John Frost, Hellhammer from Switzerland. And yeah, right. So this yeah, is yeah. pretty, pretty so early on in, yeah. into the mid '80s before these guys. So we're talking like '84, '85 then around this period. Yeah, that's around. Well, Kill well, Them All came out what '83, about '83, and then you sort of had you know Slayer's first album was '83, Anthrax about '84, and then so so Australia was kind of in it even when it began back then. But there was very few bands. But we only anyway, it's Australia, so you're isolated, so you don't get known. So I just used to tape trade and do, and that's when fanzines started in the underground because because the mainstream uh, sort of traditional metal. Press even sort of rejected thrash metal when it started. Yeah, right. Yeah, they, saw, yeah, they, they saw it as sort of you know not talented and immature and just sort of you know I guess it had that kind of punk element because heavy metal always had a sort of you know a, a mastery of your instrument element to it where punk was very street level and just you know go for broke. And so I think that they sort of you know it's funny how you know they kind of even knock Metallica when it started, not knowing they would go on to become the biggest heavy metal band in the history of the universe. And I knew, I knew that it was changing. I was into heavy metal before Thrash started, but always looking for something heavier. And then when it started to come around, because we always had vet, we had Venom and stuff before the Motorhead. And what do you remember just, about that period? Because if we're talking sort of like late seventies, early eighties, because I I was too young then, but it just sort of felt like there was new wave of British heavy metal, and then out of the blue, early thrash came out of that, and it just seems, it seems like too much of a of a bridge between those two extremes. Was there anything that was sort of filling the gap in in like nineteen eighty eighty one, or was it Venom and Bathory that sort of filled that? No, well, Bathory and that didn't come out until eighty four and stuff. But I think what happened, I, for me being back, I got into metal through Iron Maiden in '82, and then, and I think a lot. I think Number of the Beast, Iron Maiden were already quite, you know, they were, they were big to a degree with their first two albums, they would tour the world and stuff. But that Number of the Beast album took them to another level. That went, that went global. That album, and I think that kind of uh, brought a lot of people's attention, even sort of especially suburban people sort of even some of the mainstream people, what I would call mainstream stars, heavy metal became more prominent worldwide. Judas Priest became very big in the States at that time too with uh, Screaming for Vengeance, you know. And of course, you, of course, you had your LA glam scene with Motley Crue and all that beginning, which was, you know, went on to become all your brats and poisons and and uh, warrants and, and, and all that kind of stuff. I was very Motley Crue at the beginning because Motley Crue were kind of from that LA hair metal scene but they but, but they had a very Motley Crue are quite influential I think on the entire black metal look I mean if you look at early Motley Crue they're all covered in spikes and blood and they've got pentagrams and inverted crosses all over well, they're, they're not unlike <laughs> early Slayer like still with the you know the, the yeah, chain mail and all, all the nails and everything. <laughs> exactly that 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 when you opened up that gatefold album that Motley Crue said an album shout at the devil and they're, they're just they're drenched in spikes and flames and fire and it's like well, yeah, this is, this is pretty influential on what black metal's going to look like. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that wouldn't have even, even been a thing. Like, I mean, when do you think, because when I think about that, um, uh, like the uh, Venom and Bathory they talk about, but sort of seemed like Possessed was the first sort of cross crossover black and death metal band of the same, who've got a new album coming out this year, which is crazy to hear. Yeah. But, uh, yeah well, Possessed, uh, it's always between who invented death metal as a Possessed or the band Death. Yeah. Well, that, Death had uh, their first album, Seven Churches, which had a song called Death Metal on it. That's right. 
Well, that's the one that makes me scratch my head because Death is the only band, like, well, out of all the bands that I had sort of listened to growing up, Death is the one that I remember that was still active and playing growing up, but no one listened to. And it's weird. um, uh, It's probably not a bad place to start the conversation. One of the things that's very weird to me is watching bands who blow up after someone dies in the band. So... You know, I was I was a big Pantera fan. I got to see them while they were still around. But then, of course, Dimebag died, and the way that he's revered now these days is very similar to the way that um, I don't know what it is. It's like seventeen, twenty-year-old kids these days look up to Chuck Schuldinger as well. But when I was a kid, there was nobody that I knew who was listening to that sort of stuff. And so I find it really weird the way that Death presents this opportunity for. Um, I'm not saying that they're not good, but artists who may have been. Uh, unremarkable, maybe in some levels of their success, ascend after death? Well, I think death always, well, they never became big, big. But uh, they're certainly totally revered in the underground as probably the beginners of, of, of death metal, I'd say. I would say they, I would say they more than possessed are the creators of death metal because they had that kind of doomy, just brutal vocals and which possessed had, but I mean, back then it was just kind of, you know, I don't get particularly concerned about who did what and everything because back then it was just when, when metal and thrash was crossing over into punk, it was just underground music. No one really, no one really got up to, uh, started to put themselves in categories. You could like anything, discharge motorhead. You could like, you know, Strange sort of crossover bands like Veermarkt and Ludacris and and you know you could like you, you, Bad Brains and Suicidal Tendencies and it was all just it was all just sort of yeah this is all sort of alternative underground metal punk sort of sort of stuff you know that was the that that, that was that was the kind of deal back then no one sort of got oh you can't like death metal if you like black metal and all this it was just uh, it was all it was all just extreme you know yeah so you, you were you music. Were... You're drumming in these bands. Um, are, are you still? Do you still actively drum? No, I've actually recorded. I'm putting out a solo album I made a few years ago, which I was meant to put out a few years ago, but ended up having a bit of a fucking breakdown. So we'll discuss that later on. And then, uh, so I, I made a solo. I'm just sort of played guitars and sang and did all the drums myself. I'm not a very good guitarist. I can just play guitar to the songs I wrote, but. Uh, that's coming out, but I haven't really. I've been dealing with a whole lot of other personal stuff in the last five years. So, okay, cool. We'll cool. get around to that. Um, you're you're based in Manchester now, is that correct? No, I'm back in Australia. I lived in Manchester for nine, ten years. Yeah, okay. I've been back. I've been back here for quite a few years now, just dealing with other personal issues and stuff. And then, uh, but yeah, I, I ended up. I moved to Europe in 1999. Stayed until about 2014. Yeah, because if I'm not mistaken, I remember hearing, I, I think you might have, I don't know if you mentioned it on a separate interview, but you flatted with Jim Jeffries for a number of years, didn't you? Yeah, I used to live with Jim in Manchester for about a year. And uh, me, him, and Jason John, a Canadian comic. Um, yeah, he, he, still, he works with Jim still in the States now. And uh, yeah, we lived in Manchester, and we were all just in London, but London became ridiculously expensive. And, we were all sort of just beginning to get gigs and comedy, so we went, we can go to Manchester and get a massive house for federal rent. And so we just went up there and, yeah, yeah, uh, that was my, my time with Jim. So what what do you think, um, one of the questions that I 
I guess that comes up is that, you know, I moved here from Canada and I, I adore it here, but I can, you know, part of that is surviving winters that are minus 20 for half of the year. So I think it's fantastic out here, but for a lot of, um, Australians that I speak to who have grown up here, they, they almost kind of despise the country and they can't wait to get out of it because they're, you know, the, the natural thing to do is to go to London and do your working holiday visa over there. And they sort of tend to compare it either to America or, or England and, uh, and not enjoy it. I mean, what sort of, uh, why did you leave and has it created different perspectives on what you thought of the country growing up versus returning to it now? Well, now that I'm uh, middle-aged, I have like, perspectives on a lot of things have changed considering when I was just young. Um, of course, I was always wanted to be creative and be in bands. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't like being here because the country is too isolated. There's no population. There's, there's, uh, there's no work. Nothing's going to happen to you. If I'd been in Europe with my bands like Slaughter Lord and stuff, I would have had a record deal. I would have gone on tour. Because there's the countries to go on tour to. There's the people to play the music to. There's underground record labels that would have gone, we'll put a record out. Whereas here, there's nothing is going to happen. And so either that's why I left for comedy, because the, the kind of comedy I wanted to do, which would be quite, I hate to use the word controversial, because I don't see it as controversial, but other people do. But I knew I wanted to. Well, I also wanted to be around. Well, I know if you want to get good at something, you have to do it. So if you want to be in the Olympics, then you've got to get up at three in the morning and go and swim in that pool for four hours and then go and do your stuff and go back in the afternoon and swim in that pool for four hours. And maybe you'll become not good enough to go in the Olympics. You're not going to be able to go in the Olympics if you train once a week. So, so if you're going to get good at comedy, well, I can't be here where I get one show every fortnight or and so I could go to England and go, right, because well, I, I toured in, with Mortal Sin overseas where we played like, you know, 35 gigs in 40 days and we'd never done that before. And your band turns into a a killing machine when you play that much, you yeah. know? And so I knew if I could go to a place where I could do four, five, six, seven, eight gigs a week, do a gig every night, be around guys who are much better than me. I saw Bill Bailey out here in 98 and, you know, he was amazing. And I went, I have to be around guys that good. Mm. I need to be around other comics who are far better than me so that I can get right. This is this is this is how I'll get good by being around people who have who are masters at it. So when when did you go what was the what, were you going over to be a comedian or to be a drummer then? No, to be a comedian. My band said <laughs> Excuse me. Um well, I, I, I did Slaughter Lord, then I was in Mortal Sea, and then I made a rock band, an eclectic rock band called Presto for about five years, from about 90 to 96. Yeah, 91 to 96. And then we made two albums. It was kind of, wasn't heavy metal. It had heavy metal elements to it, but it was a, a strange mixture of sort of, almost like sort of folk and some acoustic stuff, and then just rock and then some weird, because it was the 90s where, you know, he had, it was a very interesting time in the 90s for music. You have, you know, your Faith No More's and your, your grunge appearing and your hip-hop, and that, that was another kind of exciting era with lots of just what became big music that was kind of underground at the time. Because I saw all that stuff start. I saw Nirvana before anyone had heard of them. My punk mates I lived with had the first Nirvana album, Soundgarden and all this stuff before anybody had heard of all this kind of stuff. So that was kind of underground as well. And then... 
And so, yeah, I made this kind of weird eclectic band for about five years. We made two albums, did a couple of tours of big Australian bands here, and then I joined a black metal band called Mazul, which is completely extreme, one of the first very extreme black metal bands in this country. But I was doing comedy at the same time, and then I suddenly realized, you know, I'm not going to get good at comedy being here. I'm not going to make any money. I'm getting into my 30s now. I just, I've got an English passport. I know that there's tons of gigs over there. I know the English are the best at comedy anywhere in the world. So I just thought, right, I can't, I can't. I've always wanted to go overseas with bands, but trying to convince the rest of the guys to be as full on and joy and let's go. It's difficult with bands. So I thought as a comedian, well, I don't have to try and drag a whole band with me and deal with the tension and the stress that comes with keeping a band together. So, you know, I just have to deal with myself. So I just went, yeah, okay, I've got to do this. I started comedy. I've been doing comedy here for about three years. I thought, right, I was living with an Irish guy who had to leave the country, and I just, in case you should come. I went, yep, I'm going. So I just left. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Uh, and so what was like, um, how many years have you been into it, and, and how did you find uh, the, the change? Was it easy to pick up right away once you got over there? Oh, well, I went to Ireland first. Uh, I found it quite easy. I didn't think anything of it, really. It was, it was kind of nerve-wracking. It was very nerve-wracking going to places like the Netherlands and stuff for the first time and doing comedy to people listening in a second language and with a completely sort of, you don't exactly know their sense of humour. You know, the Australian English sense of humour can be have similarities and just speaking the same language and you have a, you have a sort of a, a history. But but I just sort of, I don't know, I've just always just gone, and, well, let's just go and start. I never really thought about it that much. That's, do you also find that there's a times, but... is there is there a difference in the sense of humor between cultures, or do you have to sort of adapt your routine at all from time to time? Yeah, if you're going to do it to a non-English speaking, you're like I've done everywhere in Europe now, I've done Switzerland and Norway, Finland, and Sweden, and, and uh, what I learned was just well, it's no good if you're going to do jokes about things in Australia. Well, that's mm. Two, you don't slow down talking so you sound like you're patronising. For me, I just realised that it's, if I say a sentence in one go that I may be speaking to an English audience like that, then I would just sort of break that sentence up with some pauses, which which just gives their brain a second. Okay. 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 I know what you're saying. If I just speak too quickly like an English, then you know, they may speak English, but they still have to sort of translate certain things so you know sometimes you, you you don't quite hit the point and all that but you just i got better at it as the years went by just got better at it just got to realize yeah especially when my comedy became more about sort of global issues and the sense of the, the things that all people had heard about and yeah plus comedy started to get bigger in europe when I was there, because the English have always done it, but the, but, the, but the Dutch and everyone didn't sort of have as big a scenes as the English. And then probably since the early 2000s, they started to have their own acts and really get into it. And it became a more, it just became a bigger thing globally, I think, stand-up comedy to do through. Well, let, let, let's talk about that then for a few minutes. So, like, um, 
you know, out here they they broadcast the the Melbourne International Comedy Fest. When I was growing up in Canada, they'd always have Just for Laughs on telly in England and over and over here as well. They broadcast live at the Apollo. Now with the internet and sort of YouTube, is it easy? Is business better for you because of these things, or or has it changed drastically? You know, in the last ten to twenty years. Well, that's very interesting in the sense of you don't want to get into politics now because of political correctness. So comedy is also sits within the within the target sites of, of people who are politically correct. So sure does. It, Let's uh, talk about that then. It's definitely, it's definitely. You can definitely. Well, well, the internet in one sense, it's almost like what what underground thrash metal had before the internet. They had tape trading, so you just you just get your demo and you run off. 50 copies of it and then send it to people in Chile and Peru and Sweden and Norway and Spain and Canada and you just go, all right, let's just send these demos out and then they'd write back and go, here's my demo or they've got an underground fanzine that they made themselves. Because as I said, the mainstream sort of music press dismissed thrash metal. So of course, along with underground bands, also underground magazines started back in the 80s. So yes. fans would make their own fanzines, just photocopy them and put all demos in them and so that was kind of like a little internet that done through the done through the post, <laughs> which is how Slaughter Lord is still quite known and cult because I was sending you know, just tons of those demos out you know, through the eighties. And I guess now with the internet, yeah, you've got what what I would have loved to have had back back in the day to get my music around the world. And uh, so now, yeah, I guess people do. They do have access to, of course, they have access to whatever they want. Really. You can, you look up the strangest things on the internet and it'll turn up, really, won't it? You know? Sure can. <laughs> <laughs> Brazilian rainforest dwellers who have been, you know, who, who, who are playing hopscotch and, oh my God, it's here. <laughs> oh, I'd, I'd say that's at the pretty vanilla end of some of these searches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. It's that other <laughs> um, dark okay. web, which I have no desire to ever go into. So. Fair enough, but so so you're saying it hasn't hasn't really changed that much for you. I just assume that um you know it's it's a pretty easy gateway then for for people that are interested to to find out about you, and I assume it would have um helped bolster you know the the industry. Uh, I guess it's the industry. I mean, I, I do understand. Yeah, people can have access to they can find anyone they want now that's, that's easier in that sense I guess if you get off your own well I'm starting a YouTube channel soon and just starting to put stuff out I'm, all my stuff that was on the internet was just put out by some other people I was just so busy touring and touring and touring I hardly ever did all that stuff I was about to take a year off and maybe start to focus on some of that kind of stuff when I uh, ended up having a bit of a bit of a breakdown for a few years so uh, look why, why don't we get into that so I had the chance to 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 read about this. Well, as um, you're saying, with comedy and political correctness, that's becoming, that's becoming. If you knows what my comedy could. Well, I've been against political correctness since 2008. I started doing comedy about how it's so it's just such a dangerous thing, and, and it's just ridiculous. It's a it's a, it's a ridiculous form of tyranny, political correctness, which you know. Basically, telling people it's like thought crime, really, making sure that everybody adheres to a certain certain ideology, and if they don't, then we'll brand them some kind of racist or sexist or misogynist. Or... 
Well, there's a, there's another guy that's not too far away from us. I remember, um, you know, I've seen Brendan Burns perform a couple of times too, and I, I, I really enjoy his stuff. And I, um, uh, this is probably a decade ago now. Somebody handed off one of his DVDs where he's got that. Um, I don't know what you'd even call it. At the end of the show, it's the reveal where he gets called out for being a sexist and a racist. Um, I think by a, a brown woman in the audience, and it turns out to be this sort of ploy or, or flip on it. But he he said pretty, you know, I, I've always enjoyed the work of yourself, um, him, Brendan Burns, guys like Doug Stanhope. As I said, Jim Jeffries was, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm I'm blown away by how big he's in the states. I, I didn't realize he had his own TV show, but he used to be pretty, um, pretty cutting edge going back, you know, ten, ten, fifteen years ago. Well, he was cutting edge back then, sure. Stan Hope, he's always been his own his own entity. And uh I love Doug. Well, he's just he's just his own his own creature, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he's, yeah, he's Patrice very... O'Neill, I always love Patrice O'Neill, because you know. Well, yeah, unfortunately, you know, you won't get a chance to see him anymore for most no, no. For anyone who's here. But uh yeah. I definitely, I definitely, uh, well, my first DVD was called While It's Still Legal, which is uh, kind of becoming prophetic in the sense of uh, how long will it take before you just can't say anything in case you, you offend someone? And it's like, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work in the context of, of law. And I'm no lawyer or academic or intellectual, but it's just pretty obvious to me. I'm just a guy who wanted to bring heavy metal bands and didn't do comedy. I mean, if I can spot it, like, come on, you know, like you, you being offended is of no concern to, to, to anybody else. It's, it's, we already have laws about you being abused or, 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 or attacked, but offended is a different thing. You know, uh, because, because if, if you could possibly start to charge someone because you were offended, well, you don't even need any proof. Well, this comes exactly from um, I've I've seen this done as a bit in your show before. Um, I, I know this very well of what you're talking about. But wh- where do you think this is going? And the reason why I ask that is, um, I guess, if you want to get political with this, what this starts to introduce is, um, I mean, you can get very political about it. And, and what has sort of blown me away is the way that. Um, the left, I guess, or progressives used to talk about fairness and equality, and we're now getting further and further away from that into areas like safe space, safe spaces, and hate speech, and sort of the um, the ideals that traditional liberals would have fought for twenty years ago have now made them the enemy of the people that they were trying to protect in a lot of ways, which I think comes into it's what that, you're talking about. That's exactly it. Like like when we grew up, well. well you had the PMRC start up where they wanted to put stickers on, on 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 CDs that they found sort of, you know, offensive. And then they call Frank Zappa into court and they arrest Jello Biafra for having a H.R. Geiger poster in a Dead Kennedys album. And that was all your kind of conservative, right-wing, Christian-y type of groups. And Whereas for people who don't know what we're talking about, we're literally talking about the explicit lyric stickers that used to go on. The, the CDs and cassettes, which was brought up by P, PMRC, was run by Tipper Gore at the time. The, the yeah, guy who stands yeah. out to me was, uh, was I think, was it D. Snyder who did the, the chat in Congress? D. Snyder went into court with Congress. Uh, Frank Zappa went in. Uh, of course, 
Ted Kennedy's got he got charged, I think, Jello Biafra, because he had that HR guy go poster in the, uh, in the in the Dead Kennedy's album, which they got him on uh, indecency charges or something. And I don't course, know which yeah, one that is. I can only think of the cover of um, Celtic Frost, where it's the alien pulling the. Is it the well, the, the, the Jesus? The yeah, the the the, the post of the Dead Kennedys had them was very was very explicit. If you can say whatever you want on here, it's basically a field of asses with dicks going in them. Okay, <laughs> and it's done in that H.R. Geiger kind of alien landscape, sort of you know style. And uh, yeah, they wanted to get him on a offensive charges to that. And then, uh, but that was that was it exactly. It wasn't. It was kind of. The left, which I have never really had a political origins because I'm not that attuned to politics and the complexities of it in that sense. But I've always kind of been on that side, yeah, an outsider, an artist, a kind of on the fringe. And sort of they, they, they were the side that always stood up and said, hey, come on, you know, it's, it's art, it's a bit wacky, it's a bit out there, but, you know, don't, don't run around banning everything. And now it's the complete opposite. Where that side's running around going, this is offensive. They're like, they're like, they're like, they're like, Puritans without God, aren't they? Like the new church ladies, as Jim Goad would say in the name of his book. And uh, yeah, everything that's that's everything that they and and beyond any comprehension you'd even think of, like microaggressions and 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 just it's just going. You know, it's sort of what else do they call it? A Subconscious racism or something like 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 just because you're a white person and you've grown up in white culture that you must have some kind of unconscious bias as they call it. Well, this this is what, what I've always argued for, and, and uh, I mean I, um, you know I'm I'm very classical liberal, but I very much understand where Trump is getting his support from, and I don't blame his supporters. He he is he is filling a, a massive void, and yes, it is pulling in a proportion of sort of white traditional racists, but it's also being filled with everyone who's just being told to shut up because they can't express their opinion or because they are white or because, uh, you know, they work a blue collar job that they should just shut up and let the intellectuals run with the ball. You know, this oh. is what happened when you remove dialogue from these situations. Yeah, I know completely. And it's like, you know, well, when I sit there on YouTube and I watch white Americans yelling at other white Americans <laughs> because, those, because those white Americans are carrying an American flag. Yes. And in America, and there's other white Americans calling those Americans Nazis. Well, this happened with, um, you know, and I'm not following the reports on it. Again, it's, it's, you could be absorbed by American politics all day, but when, um, you know, when the, the Mueller report recently came out and they said, we have concluded that there's, there's not enough evidence to suggest that Trump colluded with Russia. Now, again, most people don't like Trump, but what blew me away is the people that have decided that they don't like him were angry people in tears writing op-eds lamenting the fact that their president wasn't a traitor. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Like, like they just to me, most people just go, oh, "I hate Trump. I hate Trump. I hate Trump." I know, I know you do. Why? Because you're just parroting the narrative. It's like, it's like you, you, you just have to. 
Look, you I, I think to hate the, him. You know, and, like I hate him. Why? What has he even done to you? Why, well, that, that's the thing. It, that he's he he is the the he is the first president, not president, but the first um, leader of the Republican Party ever to stand up and talk about gay and trans rights. But everyone says that he he hates them or whatever. But that's not even my whole argument that I try to have with people is out of the you know traditional people that like music, like you and me. I go. He is the most punk president ever. And sure, he toes the Reagan line, but that is the most uncool, anti-establishment thing that you can do at this point in time. And he's the only one that stood up and gone. He he's literally just gone up and said, "I don't care what you think. Fuck you. This is what I'm doing," and it won him the election. <laughs> I know. Sometimes people say, "Who's your favorite comedian?" I get Donald Trump. Because <laughs> <laughs> just... he's come back with some corkers. <laughs> oh, it's uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but did you be, long before he was president? Did you hear the arguments that he would get into? Oh, that's what they said. <clears throat> so he used to get into these amazing arguments with Rosie O'Donnell all the way back to when she had a, a TV talk show in the nineties. Do you remember? And and a, a reporter. This is this is comedic gold because a reporter came up to him and said, um, you know, what? Why would you dare? call all all women fat dogs and he goes i did not call all women fat dogs i called rosie o'donnell a fat dog <laughs> that's the one i was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> and i just i love the non-denial about it but at the same time it's just um what's another one what's the other one that was amazing of what he did is uh a reporter said oh you know why did you say this and this and this and this and he goes no i didn't and she goes, yes, you did. It happened in October of 2018. I have the exact quote here. And he shrugs his shoulders and goes, eh, maybe I did. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't care. I just think that's the most badass thing that you could do when you're running, you know, you're, you're running for president. You go, eh, what are you going to do? Yeah, 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 maybe. Plus, plus what he said, I didn't say that. I didn't say that about Rosie O'Donnell. Why else I laughed? His, his timing was impeccable. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, in this age of everything that you say, I'm just, you know, it's it's so funny to me when when you think about punks thinking that Reagan was the enemy. And I, I'm like, you know, it's sort of switched around. And, and this guy, you know, the, these are the minor party, the, the minority things of the majority to say these days. It's just, um, you know, we're wearing a, a Make America Great hat these days is the most punk thing that you can do. That's what I was saying one day. Isn't it funny? The conservatives have become the new, the new punks, the new outcasts. The new. It's hilarious. I just, you know, I, I just, I think it would just be great if there was like, you know, a whole genre of Trump punk that comes out where they just, you know, the, the nuclear family would be their first LP. <laughs> Trump punk. I'm a Trump punk. That straight edge, and you had. And you have hardcore. Now we've got Trump punk. Trump, I, I love it. Yeah, suit, suit and ties. Everything going on. Anyway. As much as it's hilarious, it's also highly dangerous. So. Yeah, man. I don't, but, you know, you get it. As I said, I don't blame anyone for what they did. You had, you know, American politics provide you with two choices, and they made one of two choices. That's that was provided to them, and they and they chose. And uh, and I, I really that's, I that's despise. That's what's so hilarious about these people, mate. These people had every right to vote for the other candidate. End of story. Yeah. End of story, folks. That's it. 
Oh, but they must be racists and fascists. Excuse me? When were you people running around when George Bush was bumming the hell out of the Middle East? Uh, or, hey, Clinton did the same thing. And what they never talked about is that apparently a huge percentage of Obama voters were the ones who ended up voting for Trump because they were unhappy with what was supposed to happen and didn't. So it's uh, Where were you running around when, when Barack Obama's dropping more drone strikes on the Middle East than any, any U.S. president ever? Where were you? Well, they don't want to talk about it. Oh, you, you don't say anything. You don't say anything, do you? You don't say anything. But most of you don't say anything because most of you are all just brainwashed. Well, what we're seeing now, especially when it comes to the young people, is we're seeing them, you know, if they're 22, 20 years old, coming out of uni or going into uni or stuff like this. Well, we haven't known that they've been brainwashed through school for the past 20 years because we haven't been in school. And now we're seeing them come out with all these with all these PC ideas and these Marxist ideas and these by a whole bunch of left-leaning teachers and the, and, and the establishment and the narrative through all Western countries, it seems, which is, there's no agenda, apparently. It's just all happened across Western countries all at once by accident, you know. And uh, now now we're sort of seeing them come out. Well, apparently it's even worse in the universities because you've got you to remember you're, you're dealing with uh, teachers who are, you know, pro-communism who have gone into academics without having to ever pump gas, you know. <laughs> Oh, completely. And it's happening everywhere. I've been watching stuff about the Netherlands all morning. You know, the Netherlands is just completely dominated by this as well. Yeah. well tell us about that because, you know, we, we won't know about – it's one of the, the, the things I like to talk about with guests because now that I'm settled down here, you know, as as you would know, um, I think Australian media generally is, a, is at least um, better than North American media because we're tied to Asia. So we get a little bit about that, but we certainly don't get enough, you know, European news. So, so what are you hearing about what's going on over there? Well, I think it's, 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 it's the same thing within. To me, if you're a journalist and you have a, you, you, your job is to report facts, stuff. It's, it's, it's not to have an agenda towards your belief system. Yet now, if you go on, if they have a panel show or something on, on any TV show against uh, someone who's against uh, feminism or some kind of gay marriage or something, then that entire panel will be just biased against this guest. And also the, the, the narrative of the person who's apparently the, the adjudicator or, the, or the, the guy who's, you know, the, the, the main spokesman for the, for the show, you know, the, the, he, he'll be on their side as well. There'll be no neutral guy. It'll just be a, just be a group attack. And all they'll do is come up with what they always do on the left is they'll just end up calling you a name. You'll be a sexist or a racist or a, they'll try to frame you with the way they speak. They'll start going, oh, well, so-and-so from this guy. Do you know that that guy who did a whole bunch of bad stuff in Brezhevik in Norway actually read that same book you're quoting there? And they'll just try and frame you with some kind of fascist or maniac or something and and then when you start to lay facts on them, well, it won't resonate with them because facts don't even they don't care about facts because, because especially for especially as a city, they've gone through this total indoctrination system through school, and how can they call them facts? If you, I mean, we all know that your childhood affects you immensely, and if you're going to get you know brought up in India, then you're going to get used to a caste system and you. Subconscious or anywhere else, and if you get brought up to school, like we're starting to see all these young people now who have been given trophies for just competing and, and you know, taught about gay rights and everything, and all their children. Why, why young children need to hear about 
gay lifestyles is beyond me. Again, and this is probably part of the issue. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong about it, but you don't inherently teach kids about that stuff at the age of five to seven. It should be, here's how you don't. add, here's how you do Lego. Of course you do. But what it's just got to do with, with, with I know what they do, it's under the guise of anti-bullying. Right? But it's like, excuse me, this child's five. This child's not even having any of these thoughts at all. It's not even having ideas about sex or just, just stop thinking this child has some kind of some kind of, what's the word I need? Inclination or desire to... Yeah, or, or responsibility at this point. To, 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 to grow. No, we're just trying to make them grow up so that they're not racist and sexist. And they're, well, just, they're, they're not even thinking about this yet. So how is this affecting you on tour? Chris, we're, we're sort of, uh, we're, we're getting off into some wild tangents here, but, um, Chris, who organized the interview <laughs> for us, had, uh, had mentioned that, you know, you're already seeing some walkouts, uh, on this tour. Um, you know, just, uh, what, what are you talking about and how, how are you seeing audiences sort of respond to this commentary? Well, if I get my audience who have come to see me, I'm in a pretty good space. They could say, well, you know, what are you doing, preaching converted? Yeah, well, the unconverted aren't going to come to begin with. Plus, I'm not a political speaker. I'm doing stand-up comedy. There's an element of spoken word to my show now and social commentary to my show, which there always has been to a degree. And uh, the first, first port of call is to get laughs. I'm not a, I'm not, as I said, I'm not an academic or intellectual. I'm not a politician it's not my job but i certainly have strong held opinions about these these this whole pc stuff and these everybody being branded a minority except except white men and the total sort of psychological deconstruction of western countries and in, in, in or the absolute so capitulation of masculinity oh well that's big that's a big one in my show so i certainly give them a well, I give them a warning. I do a couple of little jokes up the front so we can all have a, a bit of an entree, you know. <laughs> a couple of little jokes about chickpeas and vegetarian serve, vegan. Yeah, me getting me having an enema, you know. You also, <laughs> and then I just sit down and go, okay, well, what, what are we going to start now? And so I'm just going to give you, a, let you know, if you are one of these people that really can't handle hearing anything that goes against your belief system or the the, the, the the narrative that's going through, and you, you are going to have it get triggered. And you're just, you're just, I'm just suggesting you leave now. Was it always an intention? You're not, to... going to you're not going to enjoy yourself. Actually, before I ask that, I'll ask because you mentioned people come to see me. How do you? Um, I mean, are you able to sort of gauge the audience? Are are you now selling just as Steve Hughes? Or are you still sort of actively building a fan base these days? How does that sort of work when you've when you've you know, been doing it for so many years. <clears throat> well, because I've been dealing with uh, having depression and so forth for the past few years, I've kind of been out of the scene, and yet this is the first tour I've done for a while, but I'm still pulling some decent crowds. I've lost a bit of momentum over five years, not working, and uh, but I'm still pulling a decent crowd on my level anyway, so I'm, I'm kind of like a bit heavy metal, where, you know, heavy metal fans have been in for the legions, you know what I mean? If I was just a sort of mainstream act that had disappeared for five years, unless I was 
very famous mainstream act. If I was just sort of at my level and was a mainstream act, no one would probably come because, you know, it's, you know, sort of your mainstream, mainstream people are, they don't go anywhere. They're not told all the things that they don't hear through the, through the, uh, through the media. So uh, I've still got my got my fans on that level. And some people, yeah, some people don't like it at all. But I haven't, I haven't had anything radical yet. But uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it's stand-up comedy. Mm. Pretty harsh stand-up comedy, but it's stand-up hey. comedy. Yeah. It's uh. And what's so funny? So you said, as I said, like you were saying before, I used to be sort of one of these people, right? So it's not like I used some conservatives now, Steve. Well, I have more conservative ideas about me as an adult than I did as a twenty-year-old metalhead. Same. And, and uh, I certainly understand some of the things I took for granted and didn't, didn't give respect to, which I should have. And uh, but I certainly, uh, if you want to say, you know, I don't understand what it's like to be an outcast. Well, I've hung around and supported and stuck up for every outcast. You try walking around Australia in 1982 dressed in a Motley Crue shirt with studded wristbands and tights and things hanging off you and see how long you last. You know? I, I, I didn't understand it from the moment I landed down here. I, I remember um, when I first got here. So I got here in October, like 2004. So we're just getting into summer. It's like November. It's 35 degrees outside, and I see some kids walking by. In they're, they're not even Doctor uh, Doc Martens. They're those you know typo negative type boots with a big trench coat. 35 degrees, sitting on a platform out somewhere in Western Sydney. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you guys? This is this is Motley Crue territory. You guys should be wearing. No black boardies, maximum, and a pair of thongs. <laughs> I used to do jokes about that goths on the beach. Yeah, totally. They they have a rough time. I just I found it so so bizarre. But you know, Western Sydney. Or I did. I, I don't know if that's where you're based anymore. But it was very very obvious. A little bit of the the divide of where heavy metal got its um. It's pull in Sydney. As soon as you sort of hit, um, you, you know, hit hit the M4 on the way out west, that's clearly where the where the fan base of the music was. Um, you you talk about. Uh, I've read a separate interview. And you talk about how you're getting into spoken word. I've got a lot of spoken word by guys like um, Henry Rollins and Jello Biafra as well. And this is quite interesting because you, you seem to share my opinion on sort of elements of conservat conservatism now, where. Rollins, uh, you know, he, he was kind of this uh, El Machismo guy, but he's now very, very soft in his interviews, and and it's very hard for me to go back and listen to some of the Jello Biafra stuff because it's so greeny, almost. Um, you know, do you still revisit those records or or those spoken word albums, or, or what was it about them that that uh, you know attracted you at the time? Me, me and you seem to be so on the same wavelength. If I, I, I. I'd never heard of spoken word because, as I said, started, I started hanging around with some punk guys. So I also got introduced to those Henry Rollins, uh, Jello Biafra, spoken word albums. And I just kind of liked the idea of it, you know. There was this other element. You could just get up and have a rant. And uh, I kind of liked that kind of stuff. You know, I never did it back then, but I, I, I remember those records. And, and then... Uh, but what's interesting, if I listen to Jello Biafra or Henry Rollins, I've watched an interview with Jello Biafra recently, and I've, I've watched some Rollins stuff, and I don't, I just don't agree with them anymore. I think they're still stuck in the way that it used to be, where they're totally anti-conservative, they're totally anti-sort of Republican or any aspect of the right wing, 
And I think it's a different environment we're living in now, and I think they're still stuck in it sometimes. And I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, no, I've changed. No, I've changed. And I'm like, as I said, I've stuck up this kind of this kind of lefty idea. These my straight is the new gay is a complete left liberal idea about homosexuality. And then, but now I'm like, at the same time, I was getting into anti-political correctness. So I was like, no, 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 no. In, the whole environment's changed now. I don't, I don't stand up for every form of. Well, a, a few weeks ago, we did an interview with, um, you know, if you're not online very much. <laughs> Sorry? Sorry, I just drifted off and didn't finish my sentence. <laughs> no, that's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to keep you on track a little bit so that we keep keep this uh, fl- flowing a little bit more. But we did um we did a, uh, a similar interview with a guy named Sargon of a Cat, and he's a pretty big uh, like internet person. Oh, no, Sargon. Yeah, so, so we spoke with him a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and I was mentioning like cultural Marxism the same way that you were. And he goes, no, let me stop you there. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, as we said before, we, we're both battling colds at the moment as we get into winter down here. Um, and he was saying uh, that it's the wrong term now because it's intersectionality is the term that he used. And this really, as opposed to, you know, because cultural Marxism is more like the Fox News term that you'd hear. And I didn't buy into it originally, and now it makes sense to me. But he goes, intersectionality is now how many sort of overlapping minority elements you can use to claim your cause. So it's sort of the explanation of uh, not only am I an immigrant, I'm a black immigrant who is gay, but also transgender who lives below the poverty line and used to be or was or now identifies as some spirit animal. And all of a sudden, you're sort of six points up the, uh, you know, the the pity chain, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and as as once we went through that, I went, you're right. I'm clear. I'm not defining it properly, but sort of put this all into perspective now. Of of that's what it is. It's uh, it's it's no longer black flags TV party tonight. It's the pity party tonight, and and the winner is who can who can score the. You know the the highest amount of intersectionality. Yeah, the highest amount of victimhood. You know, correct. And the, and the highest amount of you know. And there's also an element of this where it's like you know, hey, look at me. I'm a I'm an outcast, or I've you, you know, and and you know I I I'm in more danger than than the rest of you uh, because you know I stand out. And uh, but there's a part of unreality in my perspective about that. Well, yes, you do stand out. I mean, what planet do you think you live on? <laughs> right, right. If you want to rock around and go into the RSL club dressed as a goth, you're going to stand out and you're going to get some attention. And some stuff could happen to you. Like, I knew that growing up when I hung around punks and goths and were in the western suburbs. Well, don't go, don't hang around this place dressed like this. Why? Because you're going to get you're going to get in trouble. Why? Because people are going to get you know you're going to blow them, you're going to blow their minds and they, and they might act violently towards you. So so try and stay away from them as much as possible. Now, obviously, they would say, "Well, yes, Steve, and that's a bad thing." So we're trying to do something about it so that doesn't happen. Well, I don't think your strategies are going to bring that about. 
by just demonising the entire mainstream and making out as if everybody should just automatically change overnight and somehow this utopia manifests and we all just get along. And if you don't agree with us, then we'll leave you a racist and a fascist and a sexist anyway, and somehow you'll have to be brought to, brought to the law and, and sorted out. And it's like... And, and the mainstream has always been... You know, I used to hate the mainstream work, so I was a metalhead and I went punks and we went with the bush doofs and so forth. So, <laughs> bush do, yes. but now I understand. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, there's no <coughs> mainstream. You need to have happening. Well, I see a society actually runs. Well, I'm not going to go and make sure the electricity works and the sewers are unplugged and drive buses and sell you food and do all this stuff. And 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 you have to keep society in in a level of. You have to compromise at times. Why? So that we can't just let humans do whatever they want because, because the whole thing will just go insane. So, 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 if, so, so if you're gay, for example, you go, well, what, what, we have the right to have our Mardi Gras, but we're all going to dress up in, in, in tiny leather shorts and, and, and bondage gear and ball gags and stand on a float and pretend to have sex with each other on a Sunday afternoon to King's Cross. Well, well, uh, well okay. Right? you got to do... But if a bunch of heterosexual people did that, stood around in their underwear and pretended to fuck each other and carry on, then everybody would get. Well, could you get a room? What are you doing out here? What are you doing oh, well, out here? And right? that's the thing so that goes go, with... Okay, so that's the way, you, if you want to express yourself when you're gay, fair enough. But then if you're gay and you demand that you come into the mainstream, well, okay, why should the mainstream change to you? You want to be in the mainstream. Why don't you change to them? And guess what? When you come in here, you can't behave like that. Well, this is part of the argument. It's 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 recognition that the minority should be included in the mainstream, but it does not make them the mainstream, I think, is, is the issue that, that we're really talking about. Oh, here. yeah, that they should be included, but the only way that they're saying that they should be included is that the entire mainstream everything that they believe in well this is um it's another thing that happened down here and, and again i don't want to get you know it, i'm not taking political sides and i don't want to get too political but with the mardi gras that was happening down in sydney here in australia we have the liberal party which is actually our conservative party so if you can get your head around that though but um what ended up happening is that the mardi gras board um decided that because the Liberal Party was the Conservative Party, that they weren't going to allow the Liberal Party to put in a float into the, the Mardi Gras, I think, and it needed to get overturned. Ignoring the fact that it was actually under Malcolm Turnbull as the Liberal Party that passed gay marriage within the country. And then they also, what is it, in New Zealand, they banned cops from parading in the Mardi Gras uh, parade because... Again, it's an element of cultural Marxism, so cops are pigs, so they don't deserve to be part of this. Completely, as, 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 as you've said, the, the, the ignorance of the fact that you probably want these guys around protecting your right to behave this way. <laughs> and, 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 and the very fact that, that half these guys in this, on these floats will probably be dressed as cops. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Just, just with shorter trousers it it is a level of absurdity and as you said it it seems to it seems to be getting further and further where the disconnect with with reality where there's there's no longer um a single point of contention that would throw the argument the the 180 degrees there's multiple points of of argument that spin it on its head (laughs) and and 
and ones you never dreamt up, you, you, you dreamt up could even happen. You, you, you're upset about what? How oh, did you the... dream that up? How did you dream this somehow that this is somehow bite like you know a microaggression or all this kind of? You're just like, my God, how do you people leave the house? The most bizarre ones that I've seen online, and again, it's it's um, it, you know when we talk about sort of the new conservatism is is the issue of um of Muslim extremism and uh and the left. Um, who seem to be pro-transgender and, and pro-Palestine at the same time. And the most, the craziest one that I've seen are this group of feminists who all got together and then collectively did the call to prayer for Islam somewhere, I think in the Netherlands or something. It was, um, <laughs> I just, I, uh, you know, the, there's, there's, there's certain elements of this religion that are still committed to throwing gays off the top of buildings, but feminists are absolutely certain that this is the, the, the religion that provides the most amount of peace in their life. <laughs> Believe me, it's clown world. Mm. It's like clown world. I'm sitting there going, what, what planet have I, am I currently on? Like, like what? It's it's the same reason why when I see the most ardent black metal bands and I go, interesting, when's your Islam album coming out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I just, yeah, I don't, I really can't fathom these people anymore. I, I am actually just sitting there going, how do you not see this? How do you not see your utter hypocrisy and, and lunacy? And So, look, anyway, we're talking, we might as well get around to it. Um, You said you ended up taking some time off because you had a, you know, you had a nervous breakdown. This is something that I'm I'm completely unfamiliar with, and I was reading some of the interviews with you about this process, and one of the things that, um, in a separate interview you did, you said, in the lead up to this, um, I think you were getting towards the end of a tour, and one of the problems that you had on the tour is that you weren't able to wind down at any point in time. You, you felt like you were constantly wound up and you were frequently exercising, do all these things. So what, before you actually talk about the breakdown, can you just sort of explain the factors involved in this that sort of take you to this point? Yeah. I, uh, basically didn't stop. I I was such an ignorant person about looking after my health. One of the things I've learned growing up is uh, I had pretty good physical health my entire life, and you just kind of take it for granted. You realize you just take it for granted. I don't have any food allergies. I just eat what I want. I don't get fat. Carry on. Rock and roll. Do this. I can get drunk. I can actually go and knock a few laps out of the pool. I can get rid of that hangover. I can do this. and. But then I just sort of, you know, it was getting older and not even taking a bit. I didn't know it's about things like adrenal fatigue and, and how in, I knew sleep was important, but I didn't realize how important. <laughs> so how does this, so I, I'm 37 now and a lot of people that I'm talking to are older tell me when you hit like 40 or 42, it's really going to change. Like, was there, was there a specific, like, I mean, it sounds like you were just on go the whole time, but did you notice uh, like sort of a, a defining year or something happening where well, there's a yeah, drop-off? Here's the funny thing. You get like adrenal fatigue. I was wondering, why have I got so much energy? Well, I didn't. I just blown my adrenal glands into into some other thing where the entire body's now just continually trying to keep it alive by just feeding it fake energy, you know? And so what happens then? Well, then eventually you just... And I was about, as I said, I was about 20 gigs away from going right. I'm going to take a year off and just stop all this and then the, and the whole thing just collapsed and went no no 
you're going to take more than a year off now, sweetheart. It's not going to be. It's not going to be a holiday. And so, yeah, basically, you just yeah. What do you do? Well, you just jacked yourself up on cortisol and adrenaline for so long, which is then, of course, giving you insomnia. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, you just blasted your hormonal systems and your adrenaline all over your body and everything. So there, you're thinking, oh God, I only get four hours sleep, and I'm fine. I'm energized, but it's all no, it's not, Steve. You're only getting four hours sleep because your brain won't shut down, and then then it's because it's all messed up. It starts to just override your adrenaline, pump that into him, keep the body going until it eventually goes, ah, oh, we can't do this anymore, and then it just goes right. Here comes the big crash we have. <laughs> so let's uh, what? So for people like myself, we don't know what that is. So you know, we've uh, I've been able to read and see sort of you know when you hear about a mental breakdown, it seems like people lose their connection with reality, and some people end up institutionalized and never come back from it. Some people see a therapist, and sixty days later they're fine. What what exactly is it, and what happens to you? Well, I guess I guess it was a, an element of a mental breakdown because only because I don't really believe that hey hey my mind went mental or I had mental illness. No, my body broke down from exhaustion, and then what happens? Well, the psychology gets affected. Why? Because it's all connected, isn't it? So I don't really believe in mental illness. I think now you've got a physical illness, and now that you've got symptoms which are manifesting in the psychological. So, you know, I never went mad. I never had a disassociation from reality or anything like this. I just got this extreme depression. As far as the body's gone, what? Well, it's shut down. It just can't keep this up anymore. And so it just shuts everything down. And when it shuts everything down, well, you go into complete depression. And then, uh, which is brutal, and you never want it. So those are separate things. So, so, so you have a breakdown, and the breakdown then causes depression. Is this? Yeah, that's that's that seemed to be with me. Okay, so now, so that's that's sort of the next thing. What becomes? Because again, you know, you hear about, and one of the things that bugs me because I'm an outsider looking in with depression is that you now hear this term thrown around by a number of people who say, "Oh, I'm depressed," when really they they just they don't they don't do anything in their lives. They're bored a lot of the time. They're so, bored. They're bored. See, I've never had depression my entire life. See, I think it's connected to many things. One, I did have, you know, unprocessed trauma from a from a emotionally abusive child. But so what does that do? Well, that makes you do things like what? Never want to stop. Why? Because I'm because probably because uh, if you grow up in a very stressful environment as a kid, well, now I've done, I've done so much research. Now I'm not a doctor, but it seems to me that what happens? Well, your nervous system starts to get to get pumped from a young age anyway. What happens? So is, it, well, is that it, trying to stay active so that you don't, you're not sort of festering in these thoughts? Then? Well, no, no. I think, I think, if you, well, you know, my childhood was emotionally stressful from day dot. So, what happens in the brain apparently is then the amygdala, which is dealing with fear responses and everything, starts to get bigger, and the neocortex doesn't develop as well because because the nervous system is constantly in fight or flight. So, so if you're growing up as a child with a lot of trauma and stuff, then what happens? Well, you become kind of hyper or, or inwardly, uh, what's the word when you're sort of uh, you're scared of outside people, you know, you become shy. Introverted? 
introverted, right? Whereas I just became sort of a mixture of shyness and extroversion, you know. And the extroversion comes from what? Well, my nervous system's just kind of been on fire since I was a kid. So you reckon that never went down? So from 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 being a child all the way until you had this, you were just sort of you you were in fifth gear. Well, I just could always do it. I, I would I would flip between the two, where I could easily just go and sink into apathy and live by myself and uh, be on stage for days and days and days and days and days, and then just go back and live by myself and sit in there. And what would I do? Well, I just you know smoke pot. Why? Because then that can distract my mind from actually feeling anything. You know? So, uh, so, so I'm kind of, I've shut down, but I haven't really shut down. I've, I've shut it down without facing it. Right? So, and then I, then I just get back up and go, 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 go. So how, how do really, you, yeah, sorry. And then when I really started touring, touring, that's when I, that's, as you said, your buddy said before about 41, 42, that's when I really started touring, touring. So I was doing like 150 shows a year, you know, okay. never stopping, flying all around the world and did that for like five years straight. And then. Yeah, that's it. And so now you've got a mixture of not dealing with sort of your unprocessed trauma. You're pounding your body with not the greatest food. Your body's getting into, you know, getting, plus I've been working at night for 30 years. Mm. So what, you know, most people go to bed at 10, 11 if they're working a normal job, which you realize now is kind of nature. Yeah, the body is designed to, to get up in the morning and go to bed at night, whereas I've just been working at nights for 30 years. So by, by midnight, I'm just pumped. There's a hell of a lot of information that I've that I've read that you can't really, you can't change that. Like apparently people who work night shift and do those sorts of activities tend to die earlier because they're really fighting the the natural clock, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah, your, your circadian rhythms are out of whack. I have a problem now, just trying to go to bed at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock to me, most people think, oh, you to bed. 10 o'clock to me feels like fucking lunchtime. Right. So, like, okay, so, so, so what becomes, so, you know, this, this happens. So explain sort of d- depression to us because when it, cause if, if, you, if you're afflicted by it, the other thing that happens is that they go, you, you can't just turn it off and on again. So what becomes... Um, Solution's the wrong word, but cure is probably. But you know, how do you aid it or or uh, heal it? Well, I don't, it's such a very difficult one to pinpoint because it's so it's so subjective. So if someone says they're depressed, and, and then I go, yeah, I had depression. I go, yeah, I've had it too. But why? Well, I, I, there's no measurement thing of me to realize what they viewed as depression. Because if I if I have a complete sort of adrenal fatigue shutdown, also what have I thrown into whack too, I've thrown all my neurotransmitters into whack, right? So, you know, I've thrown GABA and dopamine and serotonin and norepinephrine, whatever that other one is, I can never pronounce all. So now that's all out of whack, right? So that, then that can send you into a dark place that's so fucking brutal, it's, un, it's unbelievable. If you haven't got those, those chemicals whacking that brain into some kind of balance and... and and, and happiness, and it's oh, man. So was some of this actually just to come down off everything you were doing, just having to naturalize almost then? Well, they stuck me on their antidepressants, which I was completely against. And uh, Did it help? Myself. No, no, it didn't help, so I dragged myself off them. That made me worse. Then, I, then they put me back on them because I was desperate. Then it took me another two years to get off them. And now I'm dealing with a guy in the United Kingdom who... Uh, 
Francis got me on a supplement regime, which I've been on for about nine months or so, and he's the first guy that's done anything that seems to be lasting in the, in the last five years. And is, so is that what has caused the sort of the lapse in your activity then for the last few years? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't, you know, I had the kind of depression that you couldn't, I couldn't go out of my bedroom, let alone go into a show. So yeah. how, how does that, because I've heard about this where they just go, I literally cannot get out of bed. I can't. Is how, how does that sort of work where you can't even get oh, yourself to do things? Because, because what's the depression? Well, there's no joy in anything. Nothing will give you any joy. Nothing. You can't listen to a record that you used to love. It's all dead. It's all black. The body, because they're all connected, the brain, the mind, and the body, right? So then now the body's in utter fatigue. So there's no energy. There's no psychic energy. There's no physical energy. And there's a, there's a kind of this, this, this depression of just lifelessness and darkness and blackness, which, is, which I understand why people kill themselves. It's, it's, it's intense. It's now, I, intense. I had read that you had even looked into this. Uh, assisted suicide over in the Netherlands or something is one of the articles. Oh yeah, I looked. I looked into it. You know, how does this? How does this happen? Can you do this? Because because you can't see a way out. And what's worse is it, is it, is it, it's a way out of in you. In one sense, I can imagine it must be so horrible. See, I did drugs in that throughout my life, but I was never addicted to drugs. Right? So I don't cocaine. I, I, Drunk booze, you know. I've done this, carried on. I was never, I was never like, like addicted to anything because I've had friends who are junkies and, and alcoholics, and and some have died. You know, and I know what it's like when someone is, is has, has a serious drug problem. I didn't have a serious drug problem. I took drugs for too many years, but I didn't, you know, like a like party, like party, yeah. you know, sure. I mean? a party, not like. You can't. I can't. I can't be doing 150 shows going around the world a year with a cocaine addiction. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, of course. So. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 be a pretty good dealer network. Yeah, you can't do comedy on cocaine. I've never done a gig in my life out of it. Mm. I don't. I don't need, even in bands. Nothing. I don't need weed or booze or drugs to perform. It's, I love it. I love performing. So how do you how do you deal with it? So you, you mentioned you get on a regiment. I mean, how how do you feel these days? Is it is it gone or is it just something that you have to uh, provide maintenance for? Well, I have to take these supplements, provide maintenance for. I have to make sure that I, my diet I've, I've narrowed it down as best I can. Sometimes have a bit, but you got to veer away from sugar and wheat. Sugar, well, sugar's what? Well, it's, it'll just overstimulate the brain big time, you know? This is crazy that you mention that because um, one of the other uh, interviews that I was is probably one of the Rogan podcasts. He sits down with Jordan Peterson and they talk about how removing um, uh, carbs, but specific grains from their diet. So his daughter says that she apparently, you know, she, she could sleep for like eight or nine hours a night and still wake up without any energy the next day, like go for you know two hours and then be fatigued again. And they talk about how much diet plays a role in that. But it's so, it's so difficult to maintain these days because everything is, uh, you know, manufactured <laughs> and it's hard to get away from that. And they talked more and more about going to an all meat based diet, which I'm hearing more and more about sort of against the idea of, you know, vegan and vegetarianism. But they, they, they talk about leaps and bounds about how removing carbs, grains and sugars has, um, has just, uh, left them with boundless energy. 
Oh man, yeah. Well, I've. I think I think when you, you know, people go take this diet and this will happen and happen to me. Well, that all depends on the individual, doesn't it? Their own genetics or their their, their biological makeup or their uh, even the way probably even gets deeper in the sense of even the way their brain and their thinking works. So because obviously your thinking is going to affect the, the biology and everything. So I don't think there's any kind of diet that just you can pan out and give to everyone and you all get the same same outcome. Ah, oh, you're not wrong. I was. <laughs> But for me, anyway, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can have sugar every now and again, but it's best if I just don't have any, and wheat sometimes, but then I just stop for days. I, now I notice, I never had problems with my whole life, so I just eat stuff and carry on and rock and roll and do stuff and never take any notice, but now I can, like the other morning, I couldn't get enough sleep. So I was on tour and my, you know, and I woke up and I thought there was nothing in the hotel to drink, but I had a coffee and I had it, and about halfway through it, I was almost like I could feel my nervous system going, <clears throat> Yeah, and, oh, no, he's not fucking drinking that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I've, I'm, I'm told though, at least when you get older, it's, it's a lot easier to be sort of in tune with what you need. Mm, I think it is. Yeah. Now I sort of notice, I go, okay, one day I thought, I'm going to have to do a test. So I just got, I went and got some bread rolls. I thought, I'm just going to eat four of them and see what happens. And then I just, then now I realize I've got no energy. Yeah, yeah. I've got no energy. It's not knocked me into the park. Maybe it's because he ate four of them. So I'll just take notice of it. Yeah, there is actually an effect there. So I'll just uh, take notice of that. So yeah, I just keep an eye on my diet. I have to try and get as much sleep as possible. Which is... How do you feel <laughs> overall about the um, the aging process? Oh, God, well, being a guy who's been involved in heavy metal and rock and roll and entertainment, which is not the most mature of environments to ever be in, it's, it's boring as shit. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I always had a problem with sleep because, as I said, I was always so full of energy and hype. And I was like, sleep was just like a like a, like a hassle. I mean, what do we have to? What do we have to get? What do I have to waste the next eight hours doing nothing? You know? <laughs> I said it's it's interesting because again, you know, I'm I'm not quite at that age now, but I remember because um, I've always listened to to the same sort of stuff and. I remember like when I was entering 30, people would look at me like, you still listen to that stuff? Like, you know, get a job, be, buy a suit, which I, you know, I had to do, but they, they shook their head when I explained that. Now, as I'm starting to get older, people are like, oh, it's, it's nice that you have a hobby. <laughs> I don't know why they think, it's mainstream thing before you get, but they go, are you still listening to that type of music at that age? Yeah, why? I like it. I always liked it. I don't listen to it all the time. I don't, you know, it has to be damn good for me to listen to. But, but I'm like, yeah. Well, why wouldn't I? I don't understand what your point of view is. What, what do you think? It was just a little silly thing I liked as a kid. Oh, no, this is damn fine music. There's certain things I'm so thankful for. Like now that um, now that black metal musicians have actually decided to use production on their albums, I'm so I I could not sit around people like, oh, you know. They recorded this on a cassette player in their garage, and it's limited to fifty copies. And at fifty-one, we're going to disown the band for selling out. And I'm like, this is this is terrible music. You can't, you can't hear anything. This... Yeah, I know. I was never into that. But no, I like a good production. There's a new album. I don't. I really listen to many much new bands these days. But the the this new one, which I will get, which is a 
called Voltimus, which has got the. Yes, uh, I was going to say that Flo Mornier, David Vincent, and uh, is it ne- Necromancer or something? One of the dudes from Mayhem. Uh, yeah, it's got a Ruha, whatever his name is. Uh, Rune something, yeah. Rune. So, I mean, he played, yeah, you play guitar in, in Mayhem on the. Yes, so Cryptopsy is a big band because I'm from Canada. So sort of you know that that Quebec death metal scene, where you got Cataclysm and Quovatus, and you know they're they've always been sort of um you know torchbearers for that. I'm actually going to go see them in um is it is pronounced Ultimus, isn't it? Because they've got a V, which is the first initial. I haven't worked it out either. I'm just going okay. I'll go with Ultimus. But this is um that that, that record's fantastic. Well, th- this is my whole. It's the same reason why I really like the latest Morbid Angel album. I've never traditionally been a big Morbid Angel fan, but to me, these are just straight up heavy. Like, no prog, no nine minute songs with sort of. I'm just like they're just you know three and a half minute straight ahead. You know, no clean vocals, no sort of uh, you know leads that go. No Malmsteen type stuff. It's just here's here's the track. It's delivered. Enjoy it. Take it, and, and that's sort of my well, my bread. Morbid Angel has always been my favorite death metal band, and uh, first four Morbid Angel albums stay the thing to actually love. I like Form of the Faith of the Flesh as well. Obviously, Tucker, that's fantastic. And, yeah, it's uh, too chaotic for me. Some stuff, some stuff off Gateways, and even Gateways stuff is my favorite by far. That more slow chunk tempo. Yeah, right. And uh, the last one, I didn't, I didn't like much. I haven't really heard much to a proper stereo yet, but. Uh, um, but that's the, so that ultimate record. That I just I, I love the production. I love I love that guy's guitar riffs. They're, they're unique. And David Vincent's vocals, which I've always I've always thought he's the best death metal vocalist ever. Because uh, well, I, the, cause he, cause he's, full, he's full growl, but you can hear the words. Yeah, fair call. Yeah, well, that's the same you know, reason I've, why I've, I've, I've never like, Oh, it gets um like like I really like a lot of grind as well. But as soon as we start getting into that sort of sewer type grind, where you're just there, it's just it's it's just yeah. gorgling over the vocals, where you know deeds of flesh and that sort of stuff. I'm like, there's nothing there. Mm. But um, the stuff I've been so the the Abat solo albums, the dude from um, Immortal, Immortal, yeah, I'm loving those records. He's got a new one coming out. He's a crazy bastard, that guy. He is. Have you seen that video online of him playing at a festival where he comes running down the hill and just bails it? <laughs> <laughs> so they're playing. Uh, so anyway, we're on a bit of a tangent. So I'm, we're going to a mate's wedding in Slovakia this year. So we'll be back in Europe through um, June and July. So as soon as I found that out, the, the first thing I did was sort of say, like, you know, what can I go see while I'm out there? And uh, I checked out one called uh, Metal Days in Slovenia, and there's this footage of a bat playing this show. And they're, you know, I think I think they're on like you know stage two off to the side or something. There's a gigantic hill on the side, and he's playing with, um, uh, you know, he's not cabled in, so he's got those uh, like you know battery pickups. So he runs up the hill, he's in the full corpse point and everything. And I assume it, you know, it must have rained the day before, so he takes about four steps down the hill and just bails it for about twenty feet down it while they're playing this live song. It's fantastic footage. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, so we we lined up a festival. I'm I'm gonna go see one called um, Mystic Festival in Krakow, Poland. And the reason why I was partial to it 
is I don't have to camp. So it's a two-day festival played in an arena with the support stages outside. So I'm like, oh, fantastic. If we hit bad weather or anything, I'm still going to be indoors, uh, you know, get some new ink done while I'm over there. But it's uh, it's a full uh, – Ultimus is playing over there, King Diamond, Sabaton, Slipknot. Um, oh, th- these new guys, Batshuka, are on this bill as well. You know these um, like Russian Orthodox metal guys? I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the the other band I've been listening a lot to is Firespawn, which is like the sort of um, Entombed AD side project. Entombed AD. I don't know who they are. So they're Entombed ever since the band. Oh, Entombed. Split, entombed. Yeah. And so it's it's LG Petrov. And um, so their bassist Vic was out here because they were just touring with um, – I went and saw that triple kill bill with the Haunted at the Gates and Witchery that was here. And, oh, okay. Uh, I think it's a couple of those guys, but Fire Spawns, it's it's pretty just straightforward type stuff. It's very cool. Yeah, man. I'd love to get a Poland. If you're in a Poland, I'd love to get a Poland. You can. You're a touring comedian. Yeah, yeah man. I, I, I want to go there because they're, they're not into the PC rubbish. <laughs> no, they're going through a huge wave of nationalism at the moment. <laughs> yeah, huge like... thing. Them in Hungary and Slovakia and the Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah but look, it makes sense. That's what it's like. Well, all, all the Eastern Bloc countries are like, excuse me, we just got rid of communism. We're not having this, <laughs> all right? Uh, we, we've only been here. We, we, we've been trying to build ourselves back since about 1985, and now you want to throw this is Forget about us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who knows how quickly these things come back, though. It's um, it, it's a, it's a fascinating um, sort of uh, – what's the word almost like dichotomy between everything that's going on in the globe right now where where the people who live out here in the west think that we we are living in the most terrible place that you could possibly go but there's no other option for them because no other country would even dare get on the first rung of their sort of ladder of shit but they'll protest it here it's a living in a weird time anyway the other thing i was going to ask you about um when all this happened, you had mentioned that you had quit drinking and doing any sort of uh, casual drugs. Is that still – you're still on with that plan and how has sobriety treated you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a wine on the weekend because so I went out to dinner with my friends and uh, I realized, yeah, I just have a – if I'm going to have a red wine, it's got to be absolutely brilliant red wine. None of this $4 corner shop stuff, which is just like drinking chemicals. And uh, yeah, I just have one or two. That's about it. I haven't been drunk for five years. I haven't had any drugs. Uh, I was, as I said, I wasn't addicted to anything. It's, it's no big deal. I don't know why I didn't stop before. <laughs> how does that? Um, but how, how do you change? Because again, it, we're so accustomed to um, at least drinking. As, as the, drinking is really the backbone of any social situation. So how do you know? Did, did that cause any changes, or did you find it initially <laughs> difficult? I'd been I, well while I was dealing with all the depression and stuff. I, I didn't have any social life anyway, and too uh, now that I don't work as much. I, in one sense, all the years I was working, working, I didn't have any social life then either because all my weekends were working, and so my social life was that, you know. And then uh. I said, now, 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 if I go out, I might have one glass of wine, and then I just go, it's just go, no, it doesn't really bother me. All my mates are my, my age now. No one's running around anymore going to, going to mad gigs and carrying on. Mind you, I'm back in Australia, which is easy to live in Europe because nothing's happening here. <laughs> <laughs> where, where are you based now that you're back? I'm in Melbourne. Melbourne, okay. Well, no, uh, uh, anyway. And, uh, 
no, it doesn't really bother me. I just go out. I just have soda water. So. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. No, it's just that. I never, I never, like I drank all my life, but I never drank, drank. I would only drink if I was having a party. Yeah. Like I've never had a drink at home. I wouldn't sit at home and drink beer or wine. I'm like, why? I'm like, only, it only t- it tastes far better with company. Yeah, I don't want to have a beer at home. I've got tea. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you're really English, aren't these days, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've always been like that. I just I never drank at home. So what do you... Um, to go to you, I put it this way. People used to go, do you drink? I'd go, yeah, but put it this way. If I was home for three weeks, wouldn't cross my mind. Yeah, right. Interesting. Okay. wouldn't cross my mind to have a drink. I wouldn't, I'd, never have, I'd never had booze in the house. Never had... If someone was coming around and we were drinking, then I'd go and get some booze. But I would never have booze in the house. I never, just never thought about drinking. Just... Yeah. You know, I can't say that I'm some kind of moral guy. I'd sit there and smoke pot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but... Uh, but I don't, I just don't smoke that anymore either. I, uh, I did so what, it once um, about about six months ago. Some guy had a little small joint. And I go, okay, I'll have a bit, and then I just went, oh god, I don't like this. So, no, it doesn't really buffet me anymore. Mm. So, I mean, it it sounds like things are a lot uh, a lot more chill for you. I mean, this is um, uh, so this is the first tour that you've done in a little while. Have you have you done any other touring since then, or is this sort of you picking your bags up again and, and starting? Yeah, I haven't done touring. I've done some shows, local shows and stuff. But uh, this is the first first good run I've done. Because I just did Sydney and Brisbane on the weekend. That was great. Then I'm going to Perth this week. New Perth and Adelaide. I'm going to show in Melbourne. And I'm going to go to New Zealand for about five days. So uh, yeah, it's, it's good. I love it. You know, I love I love, I love performing. I love it. So you're going to get back? Does that mean you get back on the international schedule, or sort of how does this? Um... I may be going to do some shows. This friend of mine in Ireland who books gigs in Asia texted me and said, "Do you want to go and do sort of two weeks and just club gigs and stuff?" And I thought, "Well, that would be a good test. Just get out and do, a, do go overseas and do that for a bit, and then come back. And then I'd love to go back to Europe and do some shows. Although I'm the show I've got now, I'm wondering." I think I think the show I've got now. If I did it in Canada or Sweden, I'd probably get arrested. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I don't know, but the UK is the worst for it. Again, when I was talking to Sargon of a Cad, this stuff you can get arrested for telling someone that they're not transgender on a Twitter post. You can say that you're not actually a woman if they identify as trans, and that's considered jailable hate speech these days. That's what I'm wondering whether I can take the show to the UK. I thought about the UK as well. I thought, can I can I do this? Yeah. Well, look, I, I'm it's such a shame. The great the greatest comedy country on the earth. How, how has this happened? Oh, you got to read some of um, Peter Hitchens, the, uh, the Daily Mail and, and author. He he reckons um, the, the the UK and England as a country failed 30 years ago, and it's just been shambling along ever since. It's uh it's very fascinating to see, um, you know, when you, when you talk about these things as well, your perspective changes. And as you get older, you finally start listening to people that have been around longer and, and their yeah, perspectives on things. Big time. And you start to realize that there's certain aspects of life you took for granted because it all seems so, you know, you're, especially in Australia where no one's ever been under any kind of real hardcore intense revolutionary idea or anything like that, you know, like, like Europeans have a history of understanding this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Well, it's the it's same. Probably, probably Canadians don't either. You know. What well, if, this, this is my whole argument again. Like I, I was very pro Brexit outside of any of the the visa things. I, I mean, you know, the 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 UK was uh, under Churchill was the 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 very first country to stand up and fight Hitler, and everyone's sitting around telling them that they should be controlled by an unelected bureaucracy <laughs> at the Hague. And I go, you know. The, this is the one country that actually had the balls to stand up and go to war over this stuff, and you're sitting there complaining that that people sitting on a quarter of a million dollar salary who aren't elected by anyone should define the terms of trade and who and who cannot come into your country. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. I know. I, I was saying that ten years ago. What's this unelected quasi government euro super state that you're going to try and just? Well, that's where it all goes back to political correctness and everything. What? Well, you start to deconstruct the psychological history and, and narrative of, of of the individual nation, don't you? Indeed. Um, so you start to go, you don't have any history. Now, I was watching a thing about the Netherlands this morning, some guy going, you know, the Netherlands belongs to no one in particular. Well, fuck that. It should belong to someone. It should belong to a group well, of people. what are you talking about? It belongs to the Dutch, the people that built it. <laughs> I know exactly what you're saying. It's uh, it's as and as, as I said, like as as traditional classical liberals, I find that I find it because I I, I would not necessarily expect you to say, share some of the same opinions with me on these things, but it just shows how far the the modern left is away from people like us who even you know 15 years ago we were considered the, the you know the, the center. Oh, I was completely like that. I realized, you know, some of my opinions were based around inexperience and, and, you know, thinking I used to be the kind of same, you know, you know, why can't anyone come and live in a country and all that? And well, it was easy for me to say that then when most immigrants were a minority and there was still the host nation, which sort of dictated on the, you know, the cultural identity of the country. And they were interested when, in being part of that country. Exactly. Then when you start to go to the people who are in that country, you don't have a culture. Your your history is is, is a moot point, and, and and so now basically benevolence belongs to no one. So we can basically just share it with everyone, mm. and uh, everyone's going to come in, and we'll just have this big hodgepodge of of everyone from everywhere. We'll be multicultural and have no identity really whatsoever, except all the minorities are allowed to have an identity because you know they're oppressed. Right. <laughs> Correct. Which is, yeah, I, I, you and I are speaking the same language. Um, yeah, they're oppressed by the very nation that accepted them. What? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, it's yeah. I, uh, it is, it is what it is. But look, pro- probably best not say any more about it. I, I hear sirens in the background. <laughs> um, well, look, Steve, it's very good to talk with you. I'll, I'll ask you a couple more questions after we turn off the mic. But um, look, before we finish up, and I, I don't know, you're welcome to speak about anything else. But you know, I hope the tour goes well for you, and it's, it's glad to see you back on your feet and, and getting out there. Oh, thank you, man. It's been, been a good chat, been a good chat indeed. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, if you want to come and see this show on the 18th of May in Melbourne, that's when it will be on. Sydney, Brisbane's done. Perth is this. Uh, Saturday night, and uh, Adelaide is a Sunday night. If you'd like to come down and see some uh, comedy, which uh, is, is rippingly funny and uh, has a point of view which may uh, ruffle a few feathers, then uh, I'm the show to see. 
<laughs> now you just watch what will happen. This will go online. It will be seen by a few people now, and this will pick up steam. And in like 2023, when everyone's listening to this podcast, we'll be wondering <laughs> about these shows that you're announcing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't hear it. There's some algorithm that blocked it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, good, good to speak. I'll, I'll turn it off now and ask you a, a couple more questions. So, all the best. All right, no worries. Cheers.